Wow, thanks for coming to listen to me, actually. Uh, I'm quite stunned. Um, I don't really, truly know what systems engineering is. So I'm as mystified by you as you are by me. <laughs> Possibly more so. But we have a sneaking suspicion that there's something we all have in common. And probably some of the things I'm going to say tonight will be patently obvious and you'll be saying, well, of course I knew that and I've known that for years and that's fine. But maybe one or two of these things will be new and different. So who knows? I'll just give you my best shot and let's see if it does any good. So I've ended up calling the talk Engineering the Human Dimension of the System. Um, and there's a term which many of you will be very familiar with, which is human factors. Yeah, and user experience is really the great-grandchild of human factors. And human factors are pretty important things to do with. You can make the best nuclear power station in the world, but if the people operating it are asleep or sick or sad or don't understand the buttons, you're still in serious trouble. So the human factor influences the system dramatically. Um, but user experience has gone on a long way and has got many more dimensions since kind of the early days of human factors and human factors for nuclear power stations and air traffic control is still vitally important but that's not what I know about or not what I'm going to be talking about. So I'm going to be talking about some of the softer stuff. So if my mouse will cooperate we can advance. Hello. Oh, there we go. There's a picture of Flo again. Sorry. That's better. I wanted to say hello. So my name's Phil Barrett and I do work for Flow South Africa and I co-founded Flow in the UK in 1998, where we had grim brick walls and old-fashioned logos. And my wife, who is from Bredasdorp, said in 2006, I'm going back to South Africa. You can come if you like. <laughs> so here I am. And, uh, and lo and behold, I discovered when I got here that there was a demand for user experience design. And in fact, the first client I had was EMSS, the antenna analysis guys over in Technopark. And we went from there. This is our newer, shinier logo, and this is our logo wall of all the fabulous people we've worked with, and, and there's many more who are not shown here. Some South African companies, some UK companies that you'll see there, but really the point is, surely by working for this lot, I must have learned something, even if it was what not to do. So why did they hire me, or, or what did I do for them? Well, a lot of them have realized over the years that if they're doing a project, often a web project or a mobile project or a software, desktop software project, that's the space I tend to exist in, that they might well have people in marketing and business development and worrying about editorial content and design and of course software development and they might have project managers and many other things, but there was a missing seat at the table which was somebody whose job it is to think about what it's like to be the person using this system. And that person, me, gets called the user experience designer, the information architect, the interaction designer, the usability operative, whatever it is that you get called. They have many names because it's a young field. But they've asked Flo to come and sit at the table and do that role. And the kind of things we do look a bit like this, and we'll talk more about this later, but involves drawing stupid things with pencils and wasting sticky notes and hanging around chatting to people all day and making people up and drawing pretty line diagrams about it all. And it all can seem quite strange, but it does actually perform a very useful function. And the reason why people have paid us good money to do all this is for that fundamental reason. Yeah? So all of those commercial organizations at some point realized there's something here that's worth paying for. If we put money in, we're going to get more money out. And money talks as far as I'm concerned. So there is no greater recommendation that I can give for my field than the fact that somebody actually paid me to do it. Okay, <clears throat> so the angle I'm going to take on today's talk is about the subject of uptake. Um, and I think we hinted at that in the synopsis. Um, this is a guy called Eric Rees, who's flavor of the month in Silicon Valley at the moment. He wrote a book called The Lean Startup, which is a great read. I thoroughly recommend it. It's about what it's like to do a dot-com startup and how you have to rewire your brain to do it. And he points out very clearly near the beginning, the biggest source of waste in software development or in any really endeavor is building something that nobody wants which we seem to do on a routine basis. So when he's building dot-com startups or working with people who do, they know that they score a hit one time out of 100. You know, 99 times out of 100, the website they build is a crash, burn, waste of time, nobody wants it, no more funding, didn't get traction, etc. Um, and, and it's very visible in the world of dot-coms. But 
so often in all sorts of organizations that I work in, for anywhere from, I don't know, old mutual to Vodafone in the UK or whatever it is, failure or building something that nobody wants is almost invisible. It happens and then the customers don't really buy it and then everybody sweeps it under the carpet and then the failure is sort of drifts off and, and that's that. You know, failure isn't always this catastrophic explosion and people falling out of windows. It's, it's often quite muted in large organizations. But failure is all around us all the time and building things that people don't want is all around us all the time. So some of the reasons why dot-com entrepreneurs or indeed many people who work in larger organizations build things that people don't want is this, yeah? The mindset says people will give us their money because we are very important. They start from this mindset. And if you think about it, if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to build an interactive system uh, that you think will make money, you've got to have a hell of a lot of belief in that system. You've got to believe that people will give you their money. Otherwise, you'd never dare to take the risk. But unfortunately, that has some pretty tricky side effects. So a Harvard Business School dude, they pop up everywhere, uh, wrote a very interesting paper uh, about the nine times effect in which he did a fair load of research and discovered that generally consumers overweight the incumbent product benefit by a factor of three. So they say, the thing I've got is three times better than it really is. And entrepreneurs or, new or companies say the new product is going to be three times better than it really is going to be. That's how they think about it. So when you put those two factors together, you've got executives thinking, or you've got a gap of nine times between what the customers think and what the executives think. Yeah? So executives overvalue their own innovation. Studies show that there is a mismatch of nine to one between what innovators think consumers want and what consumers truly desire. So this is a very famous quote by him. The idea that people making systems think those systems are really brilliant and people receiving the system think, I'd like to stick with the old thing, thank you very much. So failure, like I just said, this is the graph of what I was just saying, failure doesn't mean catastrophic explosion, people falling out of windows. Success, if you imagine this is how much money you've got, success means you spend some money on making a new system and by the time you've finished, you've earned more money or you've gained more benefit uh, than when you started. And people think, well, this is what failure looks like. It's where you spend all your money and, and the project fails and you never launch and it's a disaster and we're very worried about that. And everybody's very worried about going over time and over budget and the project crashing and burning. But what actually tends to happen in failure land is what Harvard, call, Harvard Business School call a cash trap. The idea that you race through, you launch this thing and nobody wants it. Nobody uses it, nobody accepts it, and so you have to do more work on it. And then they still don't want it, so you have to do more work on it. And on and on you go, never getting the benefit of the system that you set off to make, just going into kind of life support. So another way of putting this is, if you build it, they will probably not come, at least not in sufficient quantities, to stick or stick around long enough for you to get your ROI. And so this is all relevant to dot-com, but it's also relevant in lots of other business contexts. For example, I'm working at the moment on an extranet for insurance brokers. If we can get the insurance brokers to put their business online, big cost savings for everybody concerned, all the way down to the customer. But if we can't entice the insurance brokers online, then we've just written a whole load of code with no benefit whatsoever. And interestingly enough, the company who's hired us to do this has hired us because the last time they did it didn't work. They, made, they launched in 2007 a great big thing with brochures and diagrams and videos and training courses, and the brokers all said, eh, you know, so there we go. But there is a way, as, we've, as you may have guessed, that can help. So here's somebody who managed to get people to use a new, innovative, different product. In fact, an ecosystem of products. It's Apple, yeah? So they launched the iPhone in 2007. It was impossible. It couldn't be done. Launching the iPhone was a ridiculous idea. There's even a quote by Steve Ballmer of Microsoft saying, this thing will never have any significant impact, really. It's, you, can, you can look it up. It's very easy to find quote. It's well documented. And two, two years later, they owned 30% of the smartphone market. So they got people to adopt 
this product. They, got people to, they made a complex system and they got people to buy into it and use it. How did they do it? Well, after I got mine, a client of mine sent me this cartoon. Help, a bear tore out my ribcage. Don't worry, I have an iPhone. Magically cures wounded person and then iPhone owner flies off with flames coming out of his <coughs> rear end. What's this really saying? Well, when I got my iPhone, I behaved like that, which is why she sent me the cartoon. iPhones, if you remember what smartphones were like in 2006, they were these large cryptic objects, usually made by Nokia, which tended to break and were very complicated and fiddly. Or there was Windows Phone 5, which had a start button on it, and all sorts of strange things which are really difficult to use. And Apple said, oh, we'll make a phone out of glass and silicon and plastic and software and chrome and all the same ingredients that a phone has always had, but we'll add one more thing, which is a great user experience. So suddenly their, their users feel like superheroes and feeling like a superhero is really nice. And they tell their friends and their friends want to feel like superheroes too. So by adding this user experience ingredient, suddenly ordinary people are empowered to do extraordinary things and they like it. Here's another interesting example. This was a Forrester survey from a few years ago asking people, asking companies, you wanted your customers to go and do online self-service, you know, to update their records online, to, to, you know, make claims online, to do whatever it is, get help online. What worked? How did you, how did you get people to do it? So, how many people said, well, what we did is we hid the telephone contact information so they couldn't call us anymore? Not a very successful one. What about putting people on hold and telling them they should really go to the website? Not really successful. What about paying them to use the website? Didn't actually work that well. What worked? Making the website really easy to use and useful. Making it do the things that people actually want to do so that you can do your banking in your socks in the middle of the night or you can, you know, buy your next PlayStation game at two in the morning when you've just finished the previous one or whatever it is. And here's another example of customer migration. This is a project we worked on in 2006 actually where if in the UK you wanted to buy a train ticket you had to battle with this very weeny, finickety, parsimonious, slow website that sort of drip-fed information at you and said, yes, I'm, there is probably a train that goes where you want, but I couldn't possibly tell you how much it'll cost and things like that. And it was very, very hard to get a train ticket booked with this one. So a, a competitor train company came to us and said, can you work out what ticket buying is all about and make an interface that does it properly? So we did. And I'll show you a bit more about how we did it later. But this was the finished product. And it looks quite complicated, but it sort of discloses itself to you incrementally. And you learn quite a lot as you go. And people loved it. And we knew people would love it because of the way we built it. But when we launched it, we found these kind of things going on in the forums and these kind of things coming back as customer service comments and so on. Um, you can't believe the relief I feel that someone's getting it right. I'm buying all of my advance tickets from GNER because their website is much more intuitive. So this simple idea that if you make a great user experience that matches what people can do and want to do, then people say, fantastic, and off they go. What happened? Well, conversion rates went up 50% from their previous uh, rather ropey effort. So that was nice. They sold a lot of tickets. So what I'm trying to say is there's this thing called user experience, and it can help. What is it? There's an ISO definition of user experience. Oh, there's a nun, yes. She's, ha she's having one, isn't she? She's having a good user experience. Um, we will never know. We will never know what it is. Um, there's an ISO definition of user experience, and uh, you can go and read up on that later. That'll be some good homework. Um, but it boils down to something pretty much like this, which is making things easy for real human beings to use. Making things useful, not what you think would be useful, but what is actually useful, because they're not the same thing, often. Making it desirable, so making it look pretty, actually, is what that boils down to. And making it persuasive, which is about manipulating um, how people perceive it and how it gets you to engage with it. And that's great. Really, really hard to do because you have to understand what's going on in her head and everybody else's head as well. But you also have to make something that can actually be built, make something that will actually make a profit, and make something that's relevant to the organization where you're doing it. So that really is ridiculously difficult. But that's what user experience design means, I think. And here's an example. It's a website example because 
E-commerce sites make a great laboratory for this stuff because in an e-commerce website, if you get it right, people buy things. If you get it wrong, they don't. And counting money is something that most organizations are really good at. So you've got this lovely metric of money. Yeah? So this is an old site. This site is now dead, and you'll see why. Um, but I love it so much, I still tell this story. So a few years ago, I wanted to buy a monitor, and I came to this site to buy a monitor. And they said, what brand of monitor do you want? And I said, I don't really know. I want a monitor that's 1,920 pixels wide, because that's where you get the productivity gains. And that's what I want. So what have you got? And they said, well, we can't possibly tell you that. You need to tell us what brand you need and I didn't know. So I thought maybe this nav bar will help. So I put my mouse over there, and I moved my mouse down here, and then I moved it up here, and then I moved it over here, and then it fell off, and I had to go back, and I did it again, and then eventually I got to a list of brands. So I was a bit disappointed. And it struck me that there are two factors at play here which were damaging their ability to make me a happy customer. One was they didn't understand how I wanted to shop. Yeah? When you're shopping for monitors, resolution, dot pitch, response time, contrast level matters. When you're shopping for DVD players, HDMI output, Dolby 5 surround sound matters. They're not the same thing. And you can't just say, here's the brands. Yeah? That's, not, that's not helpful to me. So it's not doing what I need as a shopper. And secondly, if I want to try and use the service, I have to use this wacky thing, which requires a lot of hand-eye coordination and is, in fact, quite reminiscent of this. Yeah? <laughs> And you can see how much fun he's having. So, <laughs> yes, loving it. So if you, if you, I mean, just to sort of really put it in perspective, imagine you went to Sell You City and you said, I'd like to buy a new iPhone, please. And the man behind the counter said, yes, just go over there and play on the crazy buzzer. And if you get all the way to the end, then you can have your iPhone. It would reduce sales. It would definitely reduce sales. You can't deny it would reduce sales. So... Why doesn't it also reduce sales here online? Of course it does. By fixing this problem and by fixing the how do you shop problem, they could increase their conversion rate by, I don't know, however many hundred percent it is. Unfortunately, they didn't and they are no more. Okay, so this user experience thing is really, uh, I can see you're impressed. Um, five benefits, very quickly. What are the big five reasons to think about this user experience thing? Well, one is you make more money, you get more uptake, you get people doing more of the thing you wanted them to do. Two is brand and loyalty. When they do it, if they're happy every time, they'll become terribly loyal, they'll tell their friends, they'll stick around, they won't cancel their subscription, all that kind of stuff. Three, reduce customer service costs. They'll go and do the thing online, they won't call you for help because it's obvious, don't need any help, it works just fine. Differentiation, if there's five people who do the same thing you do, why would people choose your product? Because yours lets them do it quicker, easier, in a more beautiful, desirable way. That's a pretty important reason. And the last one, reduced development costs, is a complicated debate, which we won't go into too much, but it's quite a real outcome. Ultimately, you spend less time building the wrong stuff. And so you've got a hint, but here's a bit more. Increased revenue. Here's some examples of flow products, uh, flow projects in the past. So selling 30% more toys, getting 75% more uh, life insurance guys online than expected, increasing the traffic to a newspaper by 50-odd percent, selling more 50% more train tickets, that kind of stuff. Yeah, It makes a measurable difference. And the most famous example is called the $300 million button. And it's a story from a guy called Jared Spool, who's a very entertaining usability consultant in the States. And he talks about a site, he doesn't say which one it is, where they were finding, where they usability tested it, and they found that at the checkout, when you wanted to buy something, there was a button that said, register, you must register if you want to buy. And people said, I'm not here to register, I'm here to buy. And people coming back to the site said, oh, I did register, but I forgot what my password was anyway. So 45% of customers had more than one registration. So Jared Spool's team said, this is nonsense. We shall replace the register button with a button that says, continue. In other words, you don't have to register. You can just move on through, and registration is optional. And what happened? They increased conversion by 45%, which is a figure we're getting quite used to, which for this particular large American organization meant $300 million of extra sales in one year. So it really does have an impact.
Okay, so I don't know if any of you have ever driven on the M3 heading towards town. There's a sign that looks a bit like this, and this is what inspired this slide. But anyway, the basic idea is um, if you give people a nice, easy way to get to their destination, they'll take it. If you give them a viciously hard and complicated and dangerous way, they won't. So, in a way, user experience is about that. Or even simpler, user experience is about that. If you want people to do stuff, you can train them, you can force them, you can send them newsletters telling them they must, you can incentivize them, you can put their scorecards, you can put as a factor on their scorecard, you can do all of that stuff, or you can just make it really good and useful and relevant, and then people will do it anyway. Now, there's some more dimensions. So we talked about persuasion, did we not? So this guy is called BJ Fogg. His name seems to have got mangled, but he's a professor at Stanford, and he came up with the idea of persuasive technology. Um, and he has a super cool graph, which I really like, because I was trying to draw this graph for years, and I couldn't, and then he did it, and I was like, oh, of course, it should have been like that. So he says, if you want somebody to do something, consider how able they are to do it. Is it hard to do, or is it easy to do? And if you want somebody to do something, consider how motivated they are to do it. Are they not really very motivated, or are they very motivated? Then you give them a trigger. You say, do this now. If they are sufficiently able and sufficiently motivated, then they will be in the zone of action, which is this infinite white space up there, and they will do something. If they are unable or unmotivated to a certain degree, they'll be in the zone of inaction, and they won't do what you ask them to do. Not rocket science. So, <coughs> consider a dot in the zone of inaction. Oh dear, the person is not doing what we would like them to do. You can increase their motivation. You can leave it just as difficult as it ever was, but you can make it more worthwhile. And even though it's hard, they'll do it anyway. So you can make the proposition more compelling. Or you can make the thing easier. So it's no more compelling than it ever was, but it's just so flipping easy that you might as well do it anyway. Yeah, less effort. And a lot of usability uh, stuff in the past has focused on this one, yeah? We can't, uh, the thing is what it is, yeah? Here's our site. We'd like you to do this thing. The only way we can think of to help you to do it is to make it easier to do that thing, which is cool. And you, if you make something easier, you could get into the zone of action. But there's this whole other world of let's make it more persuasive. Let's encourage people to do it by persuading them in various ingenious ways. And here's an example of that. This is from a site by 37signals, who are a fairly famous software company who make Basecamp. And this is the Basecamp sign-up page. And they're using all sorts of persuasion tactics on this page to get people to sign up. It's not, it, it may look innocent, but it's actually highly persuasive. For example, 30-day um, free trial. People do crazy things when it's free. Um, most popular plan. Most people are choosing this one. You should do what most people do, because actually, as human beings, when we don't know what to do, we look around and see what most people do. Uh, look at all these trusted people who you know who are doing this too. It must be okay, yeah? Persuasion in, the, in that way. And then after 30 days, well, you've had this thing for 30 days. It's yours. You've enjoyed it. You've used it. You've been productive with it. At least that's what they believe. It's been free. But now you'd have to give it back if you weren't prepared to pay. And there's something called the endowment effect, which means once you own something, you value it a lot more, which is why uh, <coughs> people price second-hand cars outrageously high, because it's, hey, that's my car. Yes, but it's a jalopy. Yes, but it's my jalopy. So the idea that once you own something, you value it more. So there's actually at least four pieces of subtle, persuasive uh, m messaging going on in this, in this page alone. Uh, which is kind of interesting. And then the last, uh, is it the last? Another aspect of this is this emotional dimension that, that I hinted about. Human brains are not nice, logical, linear processing units, alas. Um, they are based around a lizard brain, an ancient brain that, you know, as we evolved, we layered 
levels of cortex on top of this fundamental limbic system, this old ancient brain that lizards and rats and whatevers have. And that means that when we see something, we respond with a f a usually with a rush of chemicals and emotions. That's the very first thing that happens. And then milliseconds later, the conscious brain starts to kick in and say, why am I feeling this way? I must find a reason and post-rationalize, ah, this is why. So the cognition that happens is influenced by uh, the emotional stage that was set by this initial reaction. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's milliseconds, but the stage is set emotionally first. So what that means is that we feel first, and our thinking is influenced by what we feel. And there's plenty of research, if you rummage around, that says if you make things look beautiful, then people will use them more. So great, if we want people to use systems, we'd better make them look nice, which is what graphic designers have been saying for years. But there's, there's good solid proof. 20%, you know, you'll get 20% increased uptake just by making something look pretty. Simple as that. So as engineers, um, we can often be quite logical and say, yes, well, you know, that doesn't matter. It's all about whether the thing works. And it's like, actually, no, if it works and looks pretty, then 20% more people will use it, which could be pretty advantageous. But the really weird thing is that good-looking systems make people more productive. And that is completely counterintuitive. And the day I read that chapter, I practically passed out. The idea that not only does a good-looking system make people want to use it more, but they actually use it better. And they use it better because if you're feeling happy and relaxed, you think broadly and creatively and laterally, and you can solve problems that you couldn't solve if you're in fight or flight, if you're you know, running from a monster, feeling scared, feeling negative, thinking in a straight line, whatever. So the classic example is, imagine you're in a burning cinema and you're trying to get out and you run down a corridor and you come to the door that leads out to the street and there's flames and screaming and it's very distressing. You're in fight or flight mode, which means you're trying to get out and you're thinking in a linear way and the only thought you have is escape forward. So you throw yourself against the door and you kick the door and you rattle the door, but it won't open. And you, the, the more stressed you get, the more you throw yourself against the door and the less it opens. But if you were feeling relaxed, you'd realize that you could simply pull the door and get out onto the street. And that's why beautiful systems where people feel relaxed make them more productive. But of course, you can use this, you can use negative affect to make people pay attention to things. So if you want somebody to really focus, then you can be ugly. So a dialogue box, when there's a system critical error, a dialogue box pops up with a red thing, square corners, and a sound that goes, <coughs> and you're like, oh, what is this negative thing? And you focus on the dialogue box. So what is beautiful is a really interesting question. And it turns out that we're hardwired. We all have a fairly close, within reason, a fairly close agreement about the fundamental things that are beautiful. And this is a great picture by a Disney animator from the 30s called Preston Blair, who talks about the fact that we're hardwired to appreciate cuteness. And we can't help it because humans have evolved to appreciate cuteness because if we didn't, we'd have killed our children and that would have been the end of that. Yeah? People with children in the audience recognize what I'm talking about. So what is cuteness? Cuteness is a big bum and a big belly and big eyes and a big forehead and these things. And you can apply cuteness to all these creatures. And the moment you do, suddenly you respond positively to them. Yeah? And with interfaces, what's the definition of cuteness? Well, as far as we know, it's things like soft, curved, melodious, gentle, light, bright, and shiny. Sound like Windows 7? And Negative is loud, sharp, sudden, hard, dark, and dirty. Sound like Half-Life or Team Fortress or whatever it is, yeah? Those games are deliberately designed to test how you can survive when you're, when you're kind of flooded with negative affect. So who's using this? Well, the classic number one example is a company called MailChimp. They send spam, yeah? They enable you to send spam. What could be more depressing and miserable than organizing lists of people that you're going to spam. And yet, MailChimp makes it a joy. You come in every day, every time you land on the home screen, the chimp, who's very endearing, very cute, says different things. Me love you, Philip. Or, hi, Philip, new shirt, very nice. Or, I had a crazy dream I was trapped on a planet ruled by humans. Or whatever it is, different things every time. And people report logging in just to see what the chimp will say, which is obviously quite sad, but there you go. <laughs> Um, and I came across this recently, which is a bit hard to see, but I'll read it out. This is 
the template for the latest version of Android phone design. So the latest version of Android's operating system is called Ice Cream Sandwich. And this is a design template for interaction designers like me to use to build pictures of new bits of software. And built into the templates that they give you, they've put instructions about how to make a good user experience. And they've got things like a headline that says, Enchant me. Delight me in surprising ways. Create a sense that a powerful force is at hand. Let me make it mine. Consider fun, optional customizations. Um, and pictures are faster than words. Consider using pictures to explain ideas. They get people's attention, etc. Yeah? Right there in the Android instructions to everybody making software for their new phone, they've embedded this stuff about make people feel good about this because it'll make the difference. Now this is kind of where you might end up. This is called a customer journey map, and it can work for service design. It works offline. In fact, these are often used in service design. So if you're designing any kind of service like customer service or how a government department provides service to the citizens or um, how a call center works or how a piece of software works, this is a, is a great technique. And what it basically does is it just looks at a particular journey that you want through this complex system, uh, talks about what all the steps are, but then it talks about what your target customers, that's these guys, should be doing and thinking and feeling at each step. Because if you want to get success, then you need to think about what action must they take, can they take that action, um, what, why they would take that action, and how they will feel about it, because all three of those dimensions are important. And I think you can just see on this slide, there's a kind of a mountain range here going along the bottom. And that's actually the graph of how they're feeling. So middle means they're feeling ho-hum, top means they're feeling good, and bottom means they're feeling rather rubbish. And this cuts across different channels. We start with a phone call, we go on to a document. Uh, can't remember what that is. There, then there's a pause here. So this whole, this whole journey actually cuts across multiple different channels. And as we go, we see the points where customers can get miserable. So here they're confused, here they're annoyed, here they're annoyed, here they're annoyed. But if we can get them this far, then they're going to be satisfied and give you a green happy heart. And this idea of saying, okay, let's look at how a customer's whole journey goes through a complex system and how they feel at each point can let you debug the reasons why people aren't adopting or using a thing that you need them to use. So this was for the insurance brokers again, as you can probably tell. Um, and it's good stuff. Okay. I'll stop soon. Um, here's a message from a smart guy. Used to, he's an innovation specialist. used to work at Microsoft as a product manager for many years. <coughs> and he says, an obsession with innovation leads executives down the wrong path. He's talking about disruptive innovation and how really you don't need to do fancy tricks. All you need is the ability to make things that are good consistently since few companies do. All you need is just make good stuff. Yeah, right. Well, how do you make good stuff is the burning question. And the answer is follow the yellow brick road, by which I mean it's a process problem. Yeah. So usability or user experience is often defined as quality in use. It's a quality attribute. It's to do with the quality of use. And how do you get quality? You get quality through process. So there's a process. The process, called user-centered design, has got ISO standards and has been around since the mid-80s and has been evolving and changing slowly. Currently, the ISO is called 9241-210 uh, is the current ISO standard for it. And it says, OK, if you're going to solve a complex problem, you need to break that problem down and take it a step at a time. So you start off by going to meet the people who will use your system. If you don't meet the people who you will use your system, then you don't really know whether you're going to do it right. You've got no basis in fact to, or no insight into your target users, so it's difficult. If you're designing something for yourself, you're lucky. 37 signals say we always design for ourselves, we need to collaborate digitally, and Basecamp is a digital collaboration tool, so we're designing for ourselves. Lucky. But most of us are designing systems for people who are not us, so go meet the people. The next phase is, okay, now you've met these people, work out what they actually need, what can you give them that addresses the needs that you saw, 
and then we get into designing and building it, and then we get into launching and measuring whether we're a success. But what's going on in the middle here is all these little people and these grey arrows are showing you that at each step, and sometimes several times during the course of those steps, you take it back to the users and you see whether it's working so far. And the fine art is, how do you take something back to a user when you haven't built it yet? How can you say, does this system work when you haven't built the system? Because if you wait until you've built it to assess whether it works, well, then it's going to be a bit late in the day and rather expensive. So this idea in user-centered design is, how do you find out whether it's working before you build it or while you're building it? And it's not as hard as it sounds. So the big key concepts behind user-centered design are, observing users. We never ask the target users what they think they want or what they think of a product. We ask them, we watch what they actually do. Because you can't ask people what they want because they can't tell you because humans can't do it. So what do you do? You give them prototypes, mock-ups, bits of paper, cardboard, string, chewing gum, software, whatever, and you watch them battling through the prototype. And then you iterate the prototype and you keep doing that until this prototype actually works and people say, yeah, why are you asking me all these silly questions? It's fine, what's the problem? And then you're good to go. And last of all, working with lots of stakeholders, um, <coughs> I think you guys know that as well as I do, that there's a lot of input from a lot of places and you need to listen to it. Okay, any Agile software fans in the room? This can work with Agile, but it requires a little bit of finessing, which I'm not going to talk about today. Who does this? Well, Amazon does this. So they launched a navbar a few years back and they said, here's what we've launched and here's why. We consulted the foremost experts in the field, our customers. We traveled around the world inviting customers like you to come and try out the new features. We listened to their feedback and made changes based on their opinions. I don't like that bit. Uh, and then asked more customers for their advice and made more changes based on their feedback. So you can see iteration, working with direct customers um, and and getting people to try out a prototype right there. And it's pretty common practice. So here's some pictures of user-centered design in action. This is a prototype drawn by a guy called Paul with a pencil, it took him 20 minutes. And it's a mock-up of a financial portfolio management system. And the reason he drew it with a pencil is because that was quite fast. And if he'd done it wrong, he could throw it away and he'd only wasted 20 minutes work. So that was good. And the other advantage is that it looks like he spent about 20 minutes on it, which means that if he shows it to somebody and says, tell me what you think of this, tell me if you can use this, that person won't be too afraid to say, uh, it's not working for me, I think you should change this, because it only looks like he spent 20 minutes on it. So as an example, a friend of my, uh, friend of my mum's is a nurse, and she went uh, off to do to be part of a user research study for a medical app, nothing to do with me or my company. And when she came back, I said, so how did that go? And she said, oh, they'd done lovely drawings of what the software would be like. It was amazing, it was lovely, really pretty, nice, sparkly bits. And I said, so was it good software? And she said, no, it was rubbish, but I didn't have the heart to tell them. <laughs> so nobody's gonna have any, any problems telling Paul that this isn't right, because he only did it in 20 minutes with a pencil. And the last factor about it is, it's not pretty. And remember, prettiness makes people like things regardless of how good they are. We don't, sure we'll do the pretties, we love the pretties, but we want to know if this thing does the job. So we take the prettiness off so you don't get distracted by whether it looks nice. And you can't get executives telling you, oh, I really like what you've done with the logo, that's a great new shade of blue, which of course never happens. A few other bits and pieces, and then I shall draw this to a close. Um, this is going to meet customers. So we were going to meet uh, busy housewives in France and the UK for Orange. Orange decided that busy housewives hated all the phones they had to sell them and they were going to build their own, custom, just specially for busy housewives. And <coughs> they'd already started work and they said, yeah, we're stripping out features like crazy. We've taken out this, we've taken out that, we've taken out reminders, we've taken out whatever it is. So off we went to hang out with busy housewives to see what their lives were really like. And the busy housewives, uh, th this, this lady, the researcher sat down with her after breakfast and said, well, we're going to be spending the day together and looking at everything that you do and, you know, just I'll be kind of following you around. And the lady took the wedding ring off her finger and put it on a different finger. And the researcher said, oh, why have you done that? And the lady said, well, little Pierre has just gone off to school without his lunch. So one of the things we'll do today is go down to school to drop off his lunch. And I needed a reminder so that I wouldn't forget to do that. 
at which point our researcher is beavering away writing notes like crazy because guess what? Busy mums do need reminders on their phone. Of course they do. They just don't need the ones which say, what is the name of the meeting, what date, what time, what ringtone, what alert, da 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 da. So by understanding what, what busy mums actually are doing, just hanging out with them and watching, you realize what the right design would be. This one is called a persona, and it's a made-up person, uh, because if you, if you say, well, we're going to design for our users, you need a definition of who the users are. You can't, you can't say we're designing for our users, who are they, I don't know. You have to say, well, let's agree, this is representative of our users. So a persona is a challenging target user, somebody who you think you should be able to make happy, but they won't be easy. And you can define those and get those agreed so that the whole team is designing in a particular direction instead of designing for themselves, designing for their mum, designing at random, whatever. Stakeholder involvement, sticky notes are great for that. So this is a project at the Yellow Pages where we've got three stakeholders there all having lots of fun trading off features and mapping the system and trying to work out what, what needs to be done based on different compromises. So you've got head of sales, head of marketing and head of tech who are actually working together to get consensus about what is the right answer from the different perspectives. And the poor old flow consultant, Tara there, is struggling to get a word in edgeways because when you empower your stakeholders to uh, look at evidence from users and to think from a user perspective and you give them tools where they can collaborate, you get great results. But the killer is this. This is a usability test. Um, and here we've got um, William, he's our guy, usability testing. Um, I think this was for, I can't remember who it was for, um, but he's running a usability test. He's letting this guy use a computer system and he's watching what happens and it's all being recorded and he's writing down, keeping a track of roughly what happened and giving the guy new tasks to try out. And there's nothing like it because when stakeholders see the reality and designers see the reality of human beings actually using a computer system, or a mock-up of a computer system, you can see easily where the good stuff is and where the bad stuff is. So, I think I shall probably draw myself to a close with just a few, uh, a few notes. I could go on for days. You're so lucky I'm stopping. Um, okay, so, um, hopefully, uh, hopefully I have tickled your fancy with a few things. Um, if you're looking to get human beings to use the systems that you create, be they services or be they computer, digital computer systems or be they mobile devices or whatever, then what I'm saying is you need to understand how humans work and you need to follow a process because this is a quality issue. You need to make the thing delightful. Uh, you need to make it persuasive in the way it frames things. And we didn't really get a chance to talk about this very much, but you're going to need to explore solution space by looking at a whole range of different options, which I'm sorry we didn't, I didn't decide to waffle about that. We were running out of time. But I wanted to show you this. Yeah, a great cartoon strip by uh, a guy called Eric Burke. Typical Apple product. Touch. Typical Google product. Find your company's app. <laughs> yeah? What's going on? Um, it's hard work to get from this to this. It look, you would have thought, well, this must be easy to make. Look how simple it is. It must have been very easy to make. And yet, somehow, we always make this. It seems that this thing is easier to make than this thing. Why is that? Well, I think it's because of what I call the complexity curve, and other people, I don't know what they call it, but it's not, it's not the world, I'm not the first person to say this. When you're designing a complex system, the requirements come out of the gloom, they get layered on, you realize it has to do more and more things, and the structure you laid down for how this system might work and how this interface might work gets more and more complicated and gets under more and more pressure. And if you're a less experienced team or a less experienced designer, you'll get to this point where the thing is really complex, and you say, oh, crikey, let's just ship it now before it gets any worse. Yeah? And so you ship nice, complex thing. But if you're an experienced designer and you've understood what it really takes and how much you have to iterate and how much you have to concentrate on your users' needs and capabilities and really look at the problem, then you realize that if you work on a bit further, the whole of the complexity can collapse. You'll realize what you can strip out. You'll realize how to structure the thing and you can ship something a lot simpler. <coughs> so I hope that uh, stands you in good stead. And 
the reason to go through all this complexity, all this hard work of drawing pictures and running usability tests and iterating and so on, is this, yeah? that fundamentally a satisfied customer or user adoption, if you like, is the best business strategy of all. And that's your lot. Questions? Did I? Oh, yeah. Oh, on the, on the logo wall at the start. Yeah, yeah. He, we, there was this problem. Jamie Oliver had a blog where he talked about his fabulous lifestyle and his recipes. And he was launching a shop and he wanted to link the blog to the shop. So you'd see a picture of Jamie having lunch under the tree with his family and you'd be able to say, that bowl, I want to buy it. So we did that, that project and he came in and looked. At, we had a big wall of sticky notes and arrows showing how it all fitted together. And he came in and he looked at it and he said, yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, nice one, guys. And that was it. <laughs> 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 but at least he came. <laughs> yeah, at least he came, so that was nice. Yeah, uh, there, there's a big, uh, there's lots of thinking behind that. Yeah, so customers being satisfied, all of your customers some of the time, some of your customers all of the time. Um, if you satisfy all of your customers to a degree, then you're providing service like, um, let's say, ABSA or... Um, Nedbank or maybe MTN. I don't know exactly. But the idea is, yeah, look, we cater for everybody and we make them happy enough. Yeah? And that can often work in industries where there's an enormously high barrier to entry. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah? So that's fine. But in industries where the barrier to entry is lower, if you satisfy all of your customers to a degree, then somebody who can specialize in satisfying a niche of your customers can come and they can cater really well for that niche and they can steal all your customers in that niche. So you lose that little segment. But you're okay because you're still looking after everybody else apart from that chunk until somebody else comes along and satisfies another niche of your customers really well and then they're gone. And again and again and again until actually you haven't got any customers left because you're sort of quite good at looking after most things for most people but you're not really good at doing anything. So if you're a Seth Godin fan, one of the things he says is, right now in the world, um, it's really good if you sell a fantastically ridiculous premium product, like the world's most delicious ice cream that makes people pass out with delight and costs $20 a tub. There's a market for that. The best ice cream, yeah? Or you sell something that's really good considering how insanely cheap it is. But if you sell something that's uh, sort of quite nice and reasonably priced, you know, okay value for money, you're probably in serious trouble right now. You know, if you want to, if you want a growing business, you're going to be either crazily, crazily cheap and good quality for your cheapness, or super premium. But sitting in the middle is a problem. So making all your customers happy some of the time is a risky strategy. It turns out depends on the market, depends on the business, and so on. So if you were starting a new venture, you would be much better off picking a niche of customers and trying to make them insanely happy. But it all depends what business you're in. So if you're a dot-com startup like Eric Reese, well then fine, find a niche of people and make them insanely happy. But if you're doing a project for Vodacom and the, tar and the objective is, well, make everybody who makes telephone calls happy, then there's a limited amount that you can do, you know, <coughs> just make the phone calls work kind of thing. So did that help at all? <laughs> it is, very, yeah. And so typically with, that, with the personas, you'll, you'll pick two or three people who are your most challenging users that you think you can keep them happy. But everybody beyond those limits, everybody who's more demanding than this user in a certain way, well, you're saying, no, we're not catering for them. We're stopping catering for them. Um, and that can be very liberating because if you're designing a system for superpower users and you say, well, people who come to this for the first time won't understand it, it's like, yeah, that's okay because we're designing for superpower users. Or you're designing this for people to just walk up and use it and it's like, but superpower users will find this slow and clunky. Yeah, that's okay because this is designed for people to walk up and use it. So you do need a definition of who is trying to do what with your software Otherwise, you'll go around in circles all day. And in fact, if you look at the ISO standard, <coughs> the official definition of usability is efficiency, effectiveness, and satisfaction for specified users in a specified context of use. So in other words, you can't say, this piece of software is universally brilliant. 
because, well, it isn't. It doesn't feed the starving and it doesn't fly rockets and it doesn't whatever, you know, it, it does this thing for these people in this situation and that's all there is to it. So you've always got to define who you're shooting for, otherwise it's meaningless. So when, when people come and say, we, we want you to design a piece of software that makes everyone happy, we usually have to take them apart and say, well, let's think about this everyone here um, because it usually it can end in disaster. <laughs> um, uh, well, I was, uh, my partner was a lady called Mariel Yates. She's married now and she's called Mariel Enfisty. Um Mariel Yates, who was a graduate of the Royal College of Art, where she'd studied a master's in interaction design, which was pretty cool. And um, she had also worked for a year and a half at Microsoft in Redmond. So she was able to come back, and then she worked at the BBC, which is where I met her. So she was able to come back and say, look, I know these things. Here's what I've done working for the BBC and working for Microsoft. Um, don't you think this is a good idea? But interestingly enough, our first two customers were the BBC and Microsoft. So it's that thing, yeah, of consult back to the companies you've just left. Um, that, that works pretty well. Um, also, <coughs> this field is growing and demand is growing. So sometimes an organization will have discovered this through no, nothing you did, you know, they'll have read the papers and seen the videos and discovered it and they'll be an evangelist in the organization and they'll be saying, I need somebody to do UX with me. And you just stand there and say, I'll do it. And they're like, oh, thank goodness. And off you go. So, so there's that. But also, I guess we were lucky because you can we were riding the wave. So we were in the right place at the right time because in London at that time, there was one usability company beyond us. So we had the grand total of one competitor and the demand was starting to grow spontaneously. Um, but there is another way actually, which is you, you think of a website, let's say, website's a good example, or a mobile app, who you want to target and then you do a, an evaluation of the usability of that site and you say to them, look, this doesn't make sense, these things are wrong, this contravenes this guideline, da 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 da, we think you can make 50% more money if you get us to come in and fix this for you and sometimes they say yes. Because, you know, if you're the boss of a company and somebody says, hey, I can make you 50% more profitable, you're like, hmm, I better meet this guy. <laughs> yes, I mean, sometimes they say, yeah, I'll pay you uh, once the profit's been made. Yeah, and that's more difficult. Thank you very much.